Well, we've got some folks in Boston uh, today from our church. They're on a mission, t- uh, mission trip, and uh, pray for them as they're serving in Boston. We'll be coming back later this week. Um, but as I was thinking about our GO team in Boston, I was thinking about my first Uber ride. First time I ever went on an Uber ride was in Boston with a group of three other pastors. It was quite a memorable experience. Now, some of you have heard me tell this story because it is my, one of my all-time favorite stories. Uh, a lot of you have not heard it, so let me share it with you one more time. We were in Boston, and we're, uh, we'd been up there with these preachers, kind of a vision tour, and we're about to fly home, so we got an Uber to go to the airport, and uh, our driver that day was a man named Michael. Michael and his family moved to Boston from Hong Kong, uh, and they had been living in Boston for 37 years. That's an important number. I want you to remember, they've been living in Boston for 37 years. Now, uh, I was sitting in the back right in the middle. The reason I remember where I was sitting is because I I could see Michael's face through the rearview mirror. And so I was sitting in the back of the car, middle seat, And we were just talking to Michael. Now, first of all, Michael didn't know we were preachers. It it works better that way. Not to, you know, not to say, we got a carload of pastors. He would have broke out in sweat, you know. And and so Michael didn't know we were preachers. And we were just engaging in chit-chat, just common conversation. And, And eventually, we began to engage Michael in a gospel conversation. And it was an interesting ride as Michael was genuinely interested in what we were sharing. Michael mentioned that he drank in the course of the conversation. Remember, he didn't know we were preachers. He mentioned that he drank. And when we asked him why he drinks, he said, well, I need something to help me, but I don't know what it is. I just need something to help me in life. I just don't know what it is, so I drink. Which made me a little nervous about him driving. I didn't know if he'd been drinking that morning or not, you know. Later in the conversation, we discovered that Michael had a Christian friend who had invited him to church. Uh, And then Michael said this, and this is almost a direct quote. I can still remember it today so clearly. Talking about his friend who goes to church, Michael said, he's happier than I am and I don't know why. And then he also followed it up with, I make more money than he does and yet he's still happier than me. Now that was like throwing a stake to some dogs, you know with these preachers, he's happier than I am and I don't know why. So we asked Michael about going to his friend's church, if he'd ever considered going to church with his friend. And Michael was reluctant to do that. He said he was pretty much against all religion. And so I asked him, I said, Michael, why are you against all religion? He said, well, everyone seems to have their own religion and none of it seems to be of much use and so I really don't have anything to do with it. And then, sitting in the back seat, talking to Michael through that rearview mirror, I agreed with Michael that religion will not provide the answer that he's looking for. And he looked back at me through the rearview mirror. And I mentioned to him that the Bible says that you can have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. I'll never forget what Michael said to me. He looked in the rearview mirror and he said, you can have a relationship with God? I've never heard that before. Now, how many years had he been living in Boston? 37 years. And not one time in 37 years did he ever run into a Christian who told him, you can have a relationship with God. 
In fact, this was such new information for Michael. He was genuinely surprised and excited at that possibility. And the reason I say that, because later in the conversation, Michael blurted it out again. Looking in the rearview mirror, Michael looked at me and said, you can have a relationship with God? I've never heard that before. And then he said, never. Pastors and I continued as best we could to talk to Michael and to share with him the hope of the gospel and the new life that Jesus makes possible. And then as we were, we were approaching the airport, Michael said for the third time, You can have a relationship with God? I've never heard that before. But this time, he wasn't talking to me, and he wasn't talking to anybody in the car. This time, he was just kind of staring out the the windshield, just looking out the window, as if he was talking to himself, fascinated by the possibility of this new information he was hearing. And he just said out loud, as he was ruminating about this, as he was saying really to himself, you can have a relationship with God? I've never heard that before. Suddenly, Michael blurted out these words. If that's true, that's life-changing. And I said, you're right, it is. And that's about the time he hit the brakes. It was time to get out of the car. We were at the airport. And you know, there's other cars behind you, and you got to jump out and go. And, and we didn't have time to, once he had that, that light bulb moment, if that's true, that's life-changing. All we could do is offer a quick prayer with Michael, hand him a gospel tract, and pray for him as we were traveling back from Boston. And I don't know, I've never met Michael since, but I hope one day to see him in heaven. But I'll never forget his excitement and his curiosity. His genuine question was, you can have a relationship with God? I've never heard that before. I'm so glad I had the opportunity and the privilege to tell him about that relationship with God, me and the other pastors. Uh, and it's so interesting as I've thought back on that conversation that not, not one time in the conversation was Michael ever offended. Not one time was he ever put off. Not one time did he ever try to shut us down. But he actually received this message as good news. He'd never heard that before. And it is good news, especially if you don't have a relationship with God. I want to tell you something. It's good news to know you can have a relationship with God. But it is important that we understand how that is even possible. How is it even possible that we could have a relationship with a holy God? So today, that's what we're going to be looking at. And I hope that you'll join me as we work our way through the book of Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53. For the next several Sundays, we're going to be going through different parts of the book of Isaiah, looking at some of the powerful and timely messages that are in the book of Isaiah. And none more powerful and none more timely than Isaiah 53. In fact, Isaiah 53 is often referred to as the gospel of the Old Testament. There's so much gospel message in this text, in this chapter. It is often referred to as the gospel of the Old Testament. Dr. Kyle Yates has called this passage the the Mount Everest of Messianic prophecy. That this chapter talks more about Jesus than any other Old Testament or or, Old Testament scripture at all. It's the Mount Everest of Messianic prophecy. Now, the interesting thing about Isaiah 53 is even though it was written 700 years before Jesus Christ was born, 
it was and is a remarkable description of the life of Jesus and His death on the cross. Has history ever been written in advance? Yes. Isaiah chapter 53. Centuries, literally centuries before the Lord Jesus, Isaiah saw the day when God would send someone into our world with a special purpose. Now, I will say to you, Isaiah didn't know his name. It was just a somebody that God revealed to him. That one day, somebody would come into the world for God's special purpose. Isaiah didn't know his name. So, how do we know that chapter 53 of Isaiah is really about Jesus? And here's the answer. Because in the time of Jesus, he read Isaiah 53 and declared he was the fulfillment of that text. Let me show you this, write, write down this reference. We won't take the time to, to turn to it. I'll just quote it for you. Luke chapter 22, verse 37. Luke chapter 22, verse 37. Let me just read it to you. Jesus said these words in Luke 22, 37. It is written, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Jesus was quoting from Isaiah 53, verse 12. And, and it is written, he was numbered with the transgressors. And I tell you, that this must be fulfilled, Jesus said, this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what was written about me, Jesus said, is reaching its fulfillment. Jesus himself said, Isaiah 53 was written about me. So, the somebody that Isaiah foresaw 700 years before he was born, before Jesus was born, the somebody that Isaiah saw God sending was none other than the Lord Jesus. So Isaiah 53 is an amazing portrayal and prophecy of the pain and the punishment Jesus would endure for our sins so that we can have a relationship with God. So here's what we're going to do. This book, or I'm sorry, this chapter is alluded to or quoted more times in the New Testament than any other chapter in the Old Testament. Let that sink in for a moment. That in the New Testament, this chapter is written about more in the New Testament than any other chapter in the Old Testament. So something that significant, something that unique, demands that we read it carefully, prayerfully, and slowly. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to ask you to stand as we honor God's Word today. We're going to honor God's Word as we read this special text, Isaiah chapter 53. Stand with me as we honor God's Word and as we're reading, I'm going to outline the chapter for you. So it may be a little hard to take some notes, but I'm going to try to outline the chapter so you can see as we read the entire chapter what this chapter is really about. First of all, in verses 1 through 3, Isaiah described in verses 1 through 3 the life and ministry of Jesus. Now you won't understand everything that we're reading, but at least you will be able to recognize in those first three verses, he is talking about the life and ministry of Jesus. Here's what Isaiah wrote. <clears throat> Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Speaking of Jesus, who would come into this world 700 years later, Isaiah said, He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. In other words, Isaiah could see that this somebody... There would be nothing special about his appearance. That there would be nothing physically that you would look at him and say, that's the Son of God. There was nothing physically to even describe him as, wow, that man must be a leader. 
physically there was nothing outstanding about Jesus. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. And in fact, just the opposite, he was despised. And rejected by men. Now, lots of people followed Jesus. Lots of people were interested in Jesus in the crowds. But it was the religious leaders that despised Him. Who rejected Him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed Him not. That's the life of Jesus. Verses 4-8 through eight describe His death on the cross. Very brutal, gruesome words. Verses 4-8 through eight describe His death on the cross. Surely, He took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, and yet we considered Him stricken by God, smitten by Him and afflicted. <clears throat> but He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon Him, and by His wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. That's why we need somebody. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord, that is God, has laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Talking about the cross. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was stricken. That's his death on the cross. Verse 9 describes his burial. He was assigned a grave with the wicked. That is, he died among the wicked, uh, a thief on each side of his cross. He died among the wicked. He assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. That is, Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man, came and took his body down and put it in the grave. So he was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. That was his burial. Then finally, verses 10 through 12, describe his resurrection and exaltation. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. Though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering. And he will see his offspring and prolong his days. The will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of what, church? Life. It's a resurrection. And be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many. And he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great. He'll be exalted. And he'll divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Would you pray with me? Make the book live to me, O Lord. Show me yourself within your word. Show me myself. And show me my Savior. And make the book live to me. Help us to understand the message of Isaiah 53. And that is our prayer in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you. Would you be seated? <clears throat> if you really want to understand Isaiah 53, you need to read it from the perspective of Him and us. The entire chapter was written from that perspective of him 
and us. Now, sometimes you might see this great contrast in different words, but it's still the contrast of Him and us. Sometimes the words will be He and we. Or the words may be He and our. But there is this contrast in the heart of Isaiah 53 between Him, Jesus, and us. Let me show you this in the text. Uh, Look at verses 5 and 6. But He was pierced for our transgressions. Here's this contrast of He and our. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought peace was upon Him and we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to His own way. Now watch this. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. So if you're going to understand this this chapter, you always have to look at it from the perspective of Him, what God did to Him, and what God offers us. This contrast is so central to the entire chapter. The contrast between Him and us. If I could summarize Isaiah 53 with two sentences, it would be this. Nothing was wrong with Him And everything was wrong with us. That's what Isaiah is going to show us. That's what God showed Isaiah 700 years before Jesus was ever born. God showed Isaiah that somebody would come into the world and what God did for him or to him would have an impact on what God would do for us. You see, the thing that makes a Christian a Christian is not our perfection, and it's not our goodness, and it's not our good deeds, and it's not any of those things that so often people lean into. Those are not the things that make us a Christian. Those are not the things that give us a relationship with God. The thing that makes it possible for you and for me to have a relationship with the Holy God is that God sent Jesus to take the penalty for your sin and mine, and then to provide the remedy for that sin. Jesus came to be the penalty so He could then be the remedy. So I want to give you two two quick statements, two simple statements to show you that no matter who you are, I want you to know something today. No matter who you are, God is in your corner. And you are loved by Him with an incredible love. And you can have a relationship with Him. So let me give you, as we read Isaiah 53... Again, we're going to look at it from the perspective of Him and us. And here's the first point. There's only two. Here's the first point. I want you to notice, first of all, what God did to Him. We've got to understand this. What God did to Him. This somebody that Isaiah foresaw 700 years before Jesus was born. Clearly, he was talking about Jesus. I want you to notice what God did to Him. Verse 4. Surely He took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered Him stricken by God. Smitten by Him. And afflicted. Then those powerful words in verse 10. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush Him and cause Him to suffer. Ladies and gentlemen, if you're ever going to understand Isaiah 53, and if you're ever going to understand salvation, you need to make sure that you understand what God did to Him. To Jesus. 
Now, when I say the word substitute, what comes to your mind? Probably, for a lot of you, the, the word that comes to your mind, if you're not thinking biblically, the, the word that comes to your mind when I use the word substitute is teacher. Substitute teacher. How many of you have been a substitute teacher? Raise your hand. I know we've got some. Uh, yeah, there's hands all over the place. You, so, as these people could testify, a substitute teacher is a teacher who replaces another teacher because that teacher is absent from work. Now, now here's what happens. The substitute teacher takes the place of the regular teacher. Takes the place of. Now, some of you are baseball fans. This is baseball season. You've heard the term uh, a pinch runner or a pinch hitter. If you have a pinch runner, here's what happens. There is a guy on base. He's already there. But the pinch runner is going to come and substitute for him. He's going to literally take his place. And he's, if, he's going to try to run the bases because that's going to be his job now. So he's taking the place of. The guy that's on base is going back to the dugout. He's the substitute runner. He's the pinch runner. He will take the place of that, that guy on base. Ladies and gentlemen... Here's what you need to understand. Isaiah emphasized that Jesus was going to be our substitute. That Jesus would take our place on the cross. That Jesus experienced the penalty of our sin. With that perspective, I just want you to read these verses again with me. Beginning in verse 5. He was pierced. For our transgressions. That's, that's why we call, call it the substitutionary sacrifice. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Here again, we, we see this contrast between Him and us. He, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon Him. And by His wounds, we are healed. On the cross, here's what happened. God treated Jesus as if He had committed every sin ever committed by every person who had ever lived. Now don't let that run past your mind. God on the cross treated Jesus as if He had committed every sin of every person who had ever lived. He was guilty of none of them, and yet God treated Him as if He had done all of them. That's why it says in verse 10, yet it was the Lord's will to crush Him and cause Him to suffering, to suffer. And through the Lord, and though the Lord makes His life a guilt offering. Listen to me, church. Isaiah prophesied 700 years before the cross. Jesus would be a substitute. And as it says in verse 6, and the Lord laid on Him the iniquity of us all. You see that in verse 6? We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. I want you to imagine, just look around for a moment, I want you to imagine the iniquity that's in this room. I, I, I'm not trying to point fingers, I'm not trying to make light, but I think you'd recognize and you'd realize and you would admit that you are a sinner. I'll be the first one to put my hand up. So if you would recognize and realize that you have been a sinner, that you have sinned, the Bible says, and the Lord laid on him, 
on Jesus as he was on the cross, the Lord God laid on him, watch this, the iniquity of us all. Now that would be incredible. But we've got another group down in the Life Center. Let's include them. And the Lord has laid on them, on, on Him the iniquity of us all. But that's far too small. Because really what we're talking about is, think of all the people who are alive today. And the Lord has laid on Him, on Jesus, the iniquity of us all. All the people who are alive today. But think of all the people who have lived, but they're now dead. And, and the Lord laid on Him the iniquity of of us all. And think about all the people, if Jesus doesn't come back first, all the people who will live after us, and the Lord laid on Him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. From Adam, the first person, to the last person born, God laid on Him, on Jesus, the iniquity of us all. Verse 6, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each has turned to his own way, and the Lord laid on Him the iniquity of us all. And he was oppressed and afflicted. And yet he did not open his mouth. And look what it says in the next part of the verse. He was led like a lamb to the what? Slaughter. Don't sanitize that word. Don't sanitize the cross. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. See, if you're going to understand Isaiah 53, you have to understand what God did to him. J. Oswald Sanders said, Jesus drank a cup of wrath without mercy so that we might drink a cup of mercy without wrath. Can I be very personal with you? It was your sins and mine that ripped His flesh open. It was your sins and mine that nailed Him to the cross. It was your sins and mine that separated Him from God. He took the punishment we deserved. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. God sent Him to be this penalty for our sin. Isn't it interesting? The most innocent man who ever lived died for all of our sin. The most innocent man who ever lived experienced the penalty for all of our sin. So that's the first thing as we look at this chapter. What God did to him. He punished him on the cross for all of our sin. Secondly, I want you to see as we're trying to understand Isaiah 53... I want you to look also at what God offers to us. What is it that God offers to us? Well, based on what He did to Him, there is something very special He offers to us. And He describes it in several verses, but I think verse 6 summarizes it so well. I know we've read it, but let's read it again. We all like sheep have gone astray, and each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. And then look at verse 5 to give context to that. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And watch this. The punishment that brought us... What's that next word? That brought us what? Peace. The punishment that brought us peace was upon Him. And by His wounds we are healed. If verses 5 and 6 teach us anything, it teaches us there is a God-given remedy for your sin. 
There is a God-given remedy for my sin. And that God-given remedy is the cross of Jesus Christ. What God did to Him makes it possible for God to offer something to me. And that thing that God offers to me is forgiveness. See, the punishment that He endured on the cross actually gives me peace with God today. It's exactly what the Scripture says. The punishment that brought us peace was upon Him. It's an incredible trade-off. The, the gaping wounds of His back are the very things that heal me spiritually. His stripes are mouth salvation. His pain is my peace. The punishment that brought us peace was upon Him. And by His wounds, the gaping wounds on His back, we are healed spiritually. It really is an amazing thought that Jesus experienced the penalty of my sin so that He could be the remedy for it. And in fact, that's exactly what the New Testament declares in 1 Peter 2.24. It says, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. And Peter says, by His wounds, you are healed. What God did to Him makes it possible for God to offer something to us we could never do on our own. You see, ladies and gentlemen, our only hope is a substitute, and His name is Jesus. We're acceptable to God not because we have done great things. We're acceptable to God because we accept Jesus as our substitute on the cross. And that's the only way that sinful people can have a relationship with the sinless God. And so I'm about done. I want to summarize with this sentence Please, please, please hear this. On the cross, God treated Jesus as if He lived your life. So that He could treat you as if you lived His. And that's love. I am so bad, Jesus had to die for me. But I am so loved, Jesus was willing to die for me. 700 years before Jesus was ever born, God showed Isaiah that somebody would come into this world who would solve the sin problem. And because of what God did to him, he can offer you eternal life and forgiveness. No matter who you are, no matter how hard you have fallen, no matter how much you have embarrassed your family, no matter what you have done that has been so destructive in your life, no matter what Satan tries to tell you, you can have a relationship with God. Because it's not about you, it's about what God did to Him. He paid the price for your sin. He died as your substitute. And when you put your faith in what God did to Him and what He did for you, that's when God can offer you eternal life. And I think the verse that summarizes it best is this. But God demonstrates His love, and love for us in this. When, uh, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I want you to bow your heads for a moment. Every head bowed, every eye closed.
Did you know that you were so bad, Jesus had to die for you? That you were so loved, Jesus willingly died for you? Wouldn't it be tragic to live your whole life, to take your last breath, and you never experienced a relationship with God? Wouldn't it be tragic to have Jesus do all of that for you? To Jesus experience the penalty for your sin? Jesus offers to be the remedy for your sin? Wouldn't it be tragic to go your whole life and never experience God's forgiveness? Never experience a personal relationship with God? That would be so tragic. Today, I'm going to offer you the opportunity to say, I want God to come into my life and to forgive me of my sins. And today, I'm putting my faith in Christ and what He did for me as my substitute on the cross. My faith is in that and that alone. You may be a religious person and you may be a member of this church, but you may need to take me by the hand today and say, Keith, I'm lost. I know I've been baptized and I've served in this church, but I've never really put my faith in what Christ did on the cross. I've just always been a good religious person. I've never really thought about what God did to Him, to Jesus, for me. And so today, you can accept the remedy that God provides by putting your faith in Christ and what He did on the cross. And maybe some of you are like Michael. It's like, I've never heard that before. I didn't know that. And today God has shown you that so that you can respond to that good news. So that you can say, yes. Yes, I gladly put my faith in Jesus. I gladly accept the forgiveness that He offers. I gladly ask Christ to come into my life and be my Savior and Give me a relationship with God and eternal home in heaven. Yes, that's what I want. That's what I need. In the words of Michael, if that's true, that would be life changing. And it is true. And today it could be life changing for you. Father, in the name of Jesus, I, these dear people, I know most of them, but not all of them. And even those that I know, Lord, I can't look into their heart. I don't know their relationship with you. And so, Father, for the entire group today, we pray that if there's anybody, even just one, and they've never truly trusted Christ to save you, if they have the conviction by the Holy Spirit that they're lost, I pray that today would be the day that they become saved. That they'll put their faith in Christ today. And I ask it in Jesus' name.